I tell you what, I am so thrilled to be able to be in the house of the Lord today. But of course, that's something we do every Sunday. And every Sunday, we worship the resurrection. We worship the Christ of the resurrection. What is Easter? A Sunday school teacher asked her class on the Sunday before Easter if the children in her class knew what happened on Easter and why it was so important. One little girl spoke up saying, Easter is when the whole family gets together and you eat turkey and sing about the pilgrims and all that. (laughs) No, that's not it, said the teacher, a second student. I know what Easter is. Easter is when you get a tree, you decorate it, and you give gifts to everybody and sing lots of songs. Uh, The teacher said, no, that's not it either. Finally, a third student spoke up. Teacher, Easter is when Jesus was killed and put in a tomb and left for three days. Oh, she thought, thank goodness somebody knows what Easter is. But then the student went on. Then everybody gathers at the tomb and waits to see if Jesus comes out. And if he sees his shadow, he has to go back inside for six more weeks. (laughs) That's about as confusing as most people are about Easter. My wife and I were in the mall, haven't been to a mall in a long time. And, whoa, that's a whole new experience. But uh, we kept saying happy Easter to people. And few people smiled and said happy Easter to you. A few of them looked at us like, what? What is that even? But today we're going to take a a one-week break from our amazing truths that we have been going on about who God is. If someone were to ask you the question, who is God? Well, I believe we ought to be able to have a good answer, a accurate answer, and certainly a biblical answer. And so today we are turning our attention to the resurrection of the living Lord, the man, Christ Jesus, the Christ. There are many things that Easter means. One of them is that it is a 100% guarantee of eternal life for all who believe. Because Christ is raised, I am encouraged this morning to persevere. Because Christ is raised, I can invest my life in something that will never fail and the greatest return on any investment. Because Christ is raised, we are on the winning side this morning. Easter changed everything. And that's why this morning we are excited about being able to look into His Word. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can get a head start if you want to get your finger there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find really the Magna Carta of resurrection teaching. Over the years in 1 Corinthians 15, we have studied it, we have preached it, we have marveled in it, and been amazed by it. Today, however, we're going to look at an often overlooked, even misunderstood, very pragmatic portion of 1 Corinthians 15, and how it translates for us in our everyday life. We're today going to talk about three things that Jesus' resurrection means for us. As you noticed, if you've been here for very long at all, we love children around here. 
A young mom was driving her three-year-old to church early one Easter morning. As they drove by, she told her daughter the Easter story. This is the day, honey, we celebrate Jesus coming back to life. From the back seat, she heard a little voice, Mom, will he be in church today? (laughs) Folks, I got good news for you. He is risen, and he is in the house today. Jesus is here today. And so I am thrilled about teaching and preaching this very important passage in three things that the resurrection means to each of us. Would you bow your heads with me as we give honor to our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings? Our heads are bowed. Let's pray. Father, we just ask your blessings on the service. Thank you, Lord. Our hearts have been lifted. Lord, by every holy hug, uh, every warm greeting, Lord, uh, a cup of coffee, Lord, the beautiful music, the giving, Lord, how could we not be but just absolutely thrilled today? And yet, Lord, we come to this very important passage. Holy Spirit, teach us. More than that, change us. In fact, more. Transform us, God, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christians, early Christians, lived constantly with the bright hope that they would live again because Christ lived. The thought of eternal life was something that from centuries has been the hope of every Christian under the city of Rome, even today. There are hundreds, it is estimated 600 miles of catacombs, basically just tombs, places where people were born. During the hundreds of years of the suppression of the followers of Christ, I say the suppression of people who follow the Lord hasn't stopped. During that time, hundreds of people, thousands of people were buried in these catacombs etched in the walls and the grounds, stones and the path, and thousands of little niches in the wall, you will find the constant theme. Now, folks, this was 2,000 years ago. What was on the mind of the Christians back then? It was the resurrected Savior. Here is one such little niche that we found. Look at this picture, please. That is actually one of the ones in the catacombs underneath the city of Rome. You'll notice, first of all, the little uh, bottom right corner, something known as the Chiro. It is uh, a cross there, which uh, the first letter of Christ in the Greek alphabet looks like an X. You'll see a P there. You'll see a cross. It is the reminder of Christ, a risen Savior. You'll find a fish there that has been a symbol of Christianity since the time of Christ. Why? Well, because He, of course, has caught us for the Lord. And many of the earlier followers were very basic, common people, fishermen. Also, the biblical Greek is the word ichthus. And if you take that little terminology, ichthus, it uh, is an acrostic standing for who Christ is. The I, Jesus. The C-H, Christ. The T-H, of course, is for Theo, God. Then the U is for the Son of God. And finally, S is for a resurrected Savior. Even in that symbol of the fish, it is talking about a resurrected. And then you'll notice an anchor there. That anchor is the reminder that, and the believers knew this, that the anchor of all of our faith 
was the fact of an empty cross. And you'll notice that the anchor also has a cross there, meaning that Christ was off of that cross. He was not like some who hold a crucifix with a dead man there on a cross. No, the sign for Christianity has always been an empty cross. For 20 centuries, it has been our reminder that, folks, we serve a risen Savior. In the Dark Ages, as many as 50 million, are you listening? 50 million people like you and I, we would have been thrown in jail for doing this four or five hundred years ago. We would have, many would have lost their life or burned at a stake or boiled in oil because we are willing to stand up for God. But the reason that those believers, 50 million of them, were willing to stand was because they knew that even though they die physically, they're going to live forever because Jesus rose. Today, there's so much uh, talk about the uh, humanity issues in China, and I'm sure there is. And they talk about the Muslims that have been mistreated, and they probably are. But no one seems to remember the million-plus Chinese Christians who were killed at the beginning of the communist revolution. Why? Because they believed in Christ. Even the name Christ means that you believe he is the Messiah, because that's what the word Christ means. It is the Greek word for an anointed Savior, one who is the Messiah of God. The list goes on and on. The fact is, the last 2,000 years of world history records the references over and over again of the greatest miracle that's ever taken place. People talk about great miracles, folks, no greater and more verified miracle than the resurrection. When Khrushchev, the first general secretary of the Soviet Union, died, there came out a story about his funeral arrangements. The atheistic communistic regime had cast him off. They didn't really like him anymore. They were uncomfortable about burying his body on Soviet soil. And so they called the president of the United States, Richard Nixon. Hey, would you guys be willing to take Khrushchev's corpse and bury it. The fact is, Richard Nixon had his own problems. He declined. And so they asked Golda Meir. Golda Meir was the prime minister of Israel at the time. Golda Meir said this. She said, yes, we'll take his body. But she said, I must warn you, this country, Israel, has the world's highest resurrection rate. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, folks, we have believed in the resurrection for centuries and even today. The fact is that the resurrection is a clear chronicle of the past. There is, it is a tremendous, wonderful dogma. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. In, in Philippians 3 and verse 20, the great apostle Paul said, what is it that keeps me going? What is it that just gives me that that gas every day, that, that charge every day to keep going. Look what he says in verse 20. We look for more money. Nothing wrong with that, but no, that's not what he was looking for. He is looking for a good meal that day. No, a wonderful piece of property. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But he said, no, I look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to what? Change our vile body that it may be fashioned unto his glorious body, 
The hope of the resurrection was a thing that motivated him. That's my focus. That's where my home is. That's where my heart is. That's where my head is. Since Jesus raised, I will also be raised. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. If you have uh, spent much time in church, especially on Easter, you've probably heard a sermon from 1 Corinthians 15, and rightly so, because it is absolutely amazing. Now let me give you a shotgun blast of evidence as an introduction to our outline this morning. There are three great evidences in 1 Corinthians 15 about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, the testimony of transformed lives, verse number one. How do I know Christ lives? Because he's changed my life, Paul said, and he's changed yours. Number two, the testimony of the Word of God, verse number three. This story is not some story that's been passed down through orally through generations. No, it is written. It is a written document that has never changed, both in the Old and the New Testament. Thirdly, the evidence of eyewitnesses. How do we know that things happened in history? How do we know that? We weren't there. People say, well, that's just fact. What's fact? It was based on eyewitnesses. Well, the fact is, the Bible says that there were 500 individual stories, not just one, not one big group, 500 individual witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And then those were written down. It is an evidence, the evidence of eyewitnesses. We can believe in a risen Savior because of the evidence. The fact is the, re the resurrection is the single most attested historical fact of history. Yeah. Folks, there can be no doubt, hear me, there can be no doubt to a reasonable mind that the tomb was empty. Even secular historians validate that. You can read numbers of them. The tomb was empty. That is a historical fact. My friend, there can be no other conclusion. Christ arose. And then the next part of the 1 Corinthians, he launches into the implications. If you deny the resurrection, then here's what's going to happen. Number one, then the birth, life, and death is all there is. Then birth, life, and death is all there is. That's all there is to life. Basically, you get up in the morning, you eat, then you work, then you sleep, and then you do that for years, and then you die. That's it. That's all really that life amounts to. My, what a futile existence. Number two, Paul said, then there is no message of salvation. Verse number 14, there's no message of grace. That means all of Jesus' claims were lies. Does he sound like a liar when you read the Gospels? Number three, then having a hope is a delusion. Then all those people, the 50 million I talked about in the Dark Ages, the millions in Rome who are buried in the catacombs, the million Chinese Christians, and the millions who have been persecuted in our last 100 years, then all of those people, they're all just absolute fools for dying for nothing more than a lie. The fourth thing that Apostle said is that the apostles themselves, then verse 15, were the greatest perpetrators of fraud there ever was. If they knowingly knew that Christ, it was all a game, then the millions and billions that have been raised, all the people that died for that cause, then those people were all frauds. Number five, then that means there's no such thing as heaven. 
then why do we even have funerals? Why do people, everybody stands at funerals, even atheists pretty much stand at funerals and talk about heaven. Some of them even talk about God. Then the greatest fake news of all is heaven, because if there's no resurrected Christ, there's no heaven. Number six, then that means that dead people are all damned and damned forever. That means, friends, that all those loved ones that you have that believed in Christ, they're in hell. They're damned forever. If Christ did not come to save mankind. And then finally, seven, that means that really that Christians are the biggest, most ignorant, deceived group of all. So that means all those brilliant people, all those amazing humanitarians, all those people for the last 6,000 years who believed in God, believed in the Jehovah God, believed in Christ, that means all of them are frauds, they're deceived and ignorant. Folks, that's unthinkable. Now let's go to what the, this all means for us today. And now let's go to uh, verse number 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read it and then I'll give you the point. Verse 29. Let's all read it together if you would please. Uh, you have your Bibles there or you can look on the screens. Let's read it out loud. All right. Come on now. Let's all get involved here. Ready? Verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? What does the resurrection of Jesus really mean for you and for me? It first of all means there can be redemption. Now, I don't know what kind of life you've had. Some have had a pretty easy life. Others have had a pretty rough life. But I think it's sometimes, even those who've had it not quite so hard as others, might sometimes wonder if there's any redemption for them. Oh, I don't know how many men have told me, oh, Pastor, I'm too, I'm too bad for God to save. I know where I'm going. And that concept of the idea that I'm too bad for God to save, folks, the fact that Jesus died and rose again is a, an assault on that mindset. There is redemption because Jesus came to save. Now, let's look at this verse. This verse is a little bit cloudy, and if you're not uh, paying close attention, you're going to kind of wonder what's going on. And I will say that uh, it's not, it's been butchered by cults and others, and some strange and bizarre things, like it says, baptized for the dead, you know, we're supposed to do some things for dead people. That's not what it's meaning at all. What does it mean, baptism? What does the word baptism mean? The word baptism is a Greek word which means immersion to be immersed. And that's what the word is there. And so it is saying, and by the way, baptism is always associated with salvation in the Bible. Now let's be clear. Baptism is not salvation, but it is always associated with it. That's why I can understand why some people in some groups, especially get confused because the idea of a Christian who wasn't baptized is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. Now, it's not foreign today. I meet lots of people who say, I believe in Jesus. Have you been baptized? No. Well, why not? Oh, you know, well, it just sounds like commitment. And folks are saying, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But folks in the New Testament, when a person got born again, they got baptized. In fact, many times they got baptized on the same day. 
maybe a few weeks later, but none of this waiting for years. I know folks that have been become a Christian and haven't been baptized. It's been not just years, decades. And that's why I always am so impressed when someone says, you know what, I'm getting in the tank. I'm getting immersed. The fact I'm trying to make is the idea here then is saying this. You could say it this way. Else what shall they do then that are saved for the dead? Now that word for is the Greek word E-I-S, which means because of. People who got saved because of dying people or dead people. People whose lives were transformed because they were broken, they were moved, they were thinking about the death of others. I was grateful for one of my our brothers here today who's going to get baptized, Jeremy. We were chatting before the service. And he said, my mom just passed away a week ago. And it broke his heart. And he said, it is time for me to serve God. And this guy's going to get baptized. He's a big burly guy there. He's not ashamed of Jesus. And I think that's a good testimony of what I'm talking about. He's getting saved. He is putting his heart on Christ because of a death of a sainted mother, someone who he loved. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He is saying, we, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it gave us a motivation for being saved and for being baptized. What is he saying? That thought of a heavenly reunion just thrills my heart. You remember David in 2 Samuel chapter 12? His little boy died and he said, he cannot come to me, but I shall go to him. It was the thought of a reunion. And that's what Paul was saying. He was saying, do you want to see your loved ones again? Get saved. Because if you're saved, if you're a believer, you'll see them again. Many funerals, almost all funerals, I'll say something like this. Especially, of course, if I knew they were a believer, I would say, do you want to see your loved one again? Then you must be born again. You ought to live for Christ because that is the greatest testimony you can give to their lifestyle. And so Paul is saying here, if the resurrection is a great motivation to serve God, to be saved, to be baptized, to put him first in your life, the motivation of seeing people that you love or seeing Bible characters what Bible characters do you want to see? Have you ever thought about who you'd love to just meet? Well, for me, there are two. And I'd love to see my, of course, many loved ones and friends who I've known over the years. But I think two Bible characters I'd love to see most is, first of all, David. I love David. Authentic, real, and a very unlikely king, and yet powerful. He loved his family. He loved his nation. He was brutalized. You talk about a man who came up out of the dust. He was the little guy ruddy of complexion, and God used him. I love David. The second Bible character I'd love to see is Job. What a man of God, father of a large family, deeply godly, broken, broken, broken man, and yet perhaps the greatest testimony of faith we are told in the book of James. You remember Job? I'd love to see David and Job, and of course, my Savior, first of all. Paul is saying here, if you want to see loved ones, if you want to see these great Bible characters, then become a Christian because the resurrection means that we'll get to see them. We'll get to see them again. Here, we understand then that the resurrection gives us a motivation 
to see our loved ones. Second of all, it not only means redemption, but it means there can be contribution. Not only can God save people and change them and transform them and give them a new life, he can make their life mean something. I think a lot of people wonder, what am I here for? What's the purpose of my life? Can I make a contribution to the betterment of mankind? You can. Look at verse 30. Paul said, why am I standing in jeopardy every hour? Why am I putting myself through this if there wasn't a resurrection? If all we do is we eat, we drink, we die, we're... He said, then I wouldn't. No way. That's not what I'm going to do. But because there's a resurrection, because Christ rose from the dead, I am willing to be in jeopardy. The word jeopardy just means danger. Why did I put myself in constant danger? Because of the resurrection. Because Christ rose. And if he could do that for me, I can certainly live my life for him. Paul had a very nice life until he was apprehended of the Lord. You may remember in Acts chapter 7, he watched as Stephen was thrown into a pit. And they took stones and they were going to throw those stones on him and kill him. And they ended up doing so. Paul watched that. It left an indelible, deep impression on him. And from that moment on until the moment he got saved and then all of his life, he lived in constant danger. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 11, For we which live are always delivered unto death. For Jesus' sake, not for my sake. I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy, sort of. I feel like I can talk to people without making them mad. But he said, for Jesus' sake, I'm willing to be delivered unto death. Because Paul did that terrible thing of telling people they were free when Jesus comes into their heart. They could live forever. What a terrible thing to tell people that Jesus can be their Lord and Savior. Oh, no, it's a wonderful thing, but sometimes the world doesn't consider it such. He said, it is a privilege to serve a risen Savior. And that's why he says in verse number 31, look what he says. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Now, that's another one of those kind of cloudy verses. What is he saying? I protest, meaning actually it means I swear, not cussing. (laughs) I affirm. He is making an oath. He is saying, I am as serious as I can be. It's like us saying seriously now. I tell you. I have the deepest, deepest amount of rejoicing in my spirit for what God has done in your life. I am absolutely amazed at what God has done in the city of Corinth. Incredibly amazed. And I think we could all say the same thing here this morning. It is amazing what God does in lives. I just love how the Holy Spirit can transform somebody. I was praying for somebody this week who my heart's broken over and I just uh, prayed and prayed, and I was so grateful that as I prayed, I had hope that God could change this person. God could change them. Well, I tell you, I would hate to wake up in the morning with the thought, no hope, absolutely no hope, no hope for a better relationship, no hope for a better life, no hope for any good health, no hope for eternity. What a terrible feeling. But Christians have the the understanding, it's going to be okay. I mean, you listen to the news, it's not going to be okay. 
But when you listen to the Bible and listen to God, it's going to be okay. I tell you what, it comes and it goes, but it's going to be okay because God has risen from the dead. That's what he promised us. And yet, sadly this morning, and I'm telling you, I, when I read this poll, I just, I was amazed. According to a recent poll, people who identify as Christians were asked, a hundred, excuse me, 1,007 of them were asked, if they believed in a physical resurrection of Christ. Now listen, these are those who, I'm not talking about people who say, I have nothing to do with God or religion. We're talking about people who actually identified as Christians. A thousand and seven of them were asked the question, do you believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Only 36% said yes. Folks, that is the state of the church in America this morning. Only one-third say, I believe in a resurrected Savior. And yet that is the very thing that millions of Christians have died for, is the fact of a serving a risen Savior. Now let's go to verse 32. Paul gives a very clear example. If after a matter of men, meaning if I was to live just like everybody else, the manner of men, by the way, that's a neat phrase. I'm glad I don't have to live after the manner of men. I live a different way. My lifestyle is not at all what the world is like. I don't live after the manner of men. But if I lived after the manner of men, I would just give up. Because I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Did he actually go into a Colosseum and fight beasts there? Perhaps. Probably more colorful language, metaphorical, just people who were absolute beasts, evil people. What advantage it then for me if the dead rise not? He said, frankly, if there is no resurrection, then why in the world did I, when I was in Ephesus, why did I go through what I went through? If nobody, if we don't raise from the dead, if Jesus didn't raise, then he said, look what he said the last part. Then frankly, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> he said, let's just take on the hedonistic lifestyle. And by the way, that simple philosophy, terrible philosophy, that is the philosophy of the world. That's animal health, living like animals, living like people who do not even believe in God. And that's our society today. Our society today in America denies any accountability to divine morality. Our society in America divines that there is a literal heaven and hell. And for sure, everyone in this world, the worldly mindset, is to deny that they will stand before a judge of God. Jesus referred to this kind of a man in the book of Luke, chapter 12, he said, this man's theme, this rich man, rich, meaning he had money, but he was not rich. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You remember what Jesus said about him? What was the term he called him? Thou what? Fool. What a fool you are to live your life for just what you can eat, what you can drink, for the party life. What a fool. That's the words of our loving 
gentle Savior. What a foolish concept that it is. And that's why I commend you this morning. I do. I commend you for getting out of your house and beating the fear. For those of you who have made this dream a reality so that we could be here making a difference. And folks, this is just the beginning of what God's going to do. And so there can be redemption. There can be a contribution to society. Paul said, the reason I am dying for the Lord and the reason I put myself in jeopardy is because I want to make a difference. I want to make a contribution to society. And then finally, there can be transformation. Paul said, if I didn't think that people could be changed, I'd quit. Look at verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Do not be deceived. Don't make the mistake that others make. Now, don't miss this. Don't be deceived. And many people are deceived. I say many people in America are deceived this morning. They are deceived. Paul said, don't be deceived. Don't miss this. He said, evil communications. Now, this is an incredible incredible phrase. It is the Greek word for homiletics. Now, normally when we use the word homiletics, it's a word that's used about usually pastors who go to seminary, go to Bible college, and they learn how to present a truth in a systematic way. That's called homiletics. Here he is saying evil homiletics, evil teaching. Ooh, that almost sounds like there's a plan. People I read all the time saying about conservatives, they have a conspiracy you know, theory. Uh, trust me, there is a conspiracy out there. It is a demonic conspiracy. It is trying to get people to go to hell. That's exactly what it's saying here. Evil homiletics. That means it is a mindset. It is an, it is an agenda It is an agenda by evil people, and look what it will do. It will corrupt good manners. It corrupts them. God says it corrupts society. The mindset of the world will corrupt a society. The biblical homiletics will lift a society. Paul said, I am here to change people's lives by the power of God's morals not by some evil homiletics. Verse 34, wake up, Christian. Wake up, believer. Wake up. Wake up and smell the roses. Look around you. Realize what's happening. Awake to righteousness. Sin not. I am amazed at the amount of Christians who just sin and do not even care. I mean, just who, who cares? I mean, I live like I want. I do what I want, folks. It is time to live for righteousness because Christ rose from the dead. For some have not the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. What a shameful way. I read recently about some in the government who were referring to fearless American people as having Neanderthal thinking. Well, you want to know what is caveman thinking? I'll tell you what's Neanderthal thinking. It is when someone has the mindset that they will never have to stand before a holy God. 
You talk about caveman thinking. That is, it at its rawest form right there. I don't have to worry about God. I, you talk about living recklessly. That is the ultimate in reckless living. I don't care. Eat, drink, and be merry. What do we care? It's not, the problem with America is not racism. The problem with America is not sexism. As bad as any of those isms might be, I'm telling you, the worst and the most grievous issue with America and the world for that matter is secularism. It is people who deny living for God and that there's no such thing as a living Savior. Folks, you take away, now hear me, you take away the understanding that a man is going to stand before God someday, a woman is going to stand before God someday, you take away that thinking and society will go down like a, like a, like a rock. That is evil communication. That's evil homiletics, and it will corrupt a society. But when a society believes they're going to stand before God, it puts some backbone in them, some moral backbone. Christian faith, folks, is for those who have it, 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 the resurrection helps us to live for God. I close with this story and then three practical suggestions. Author, teacher, theologian Gary Habermas, who taught regularly on the resurrection in doctrine and in teaching, went through a very serious issue in his life. His wife passed away. After his wife passed away, he wrote this. I knew if God were to come to me, I had one question and one alone. God, why is my wife up there with you? After I thought about that, I feel like here's what I think he would have told me. Because Jesus died 2,000 years ago, it is the answer to your wife, Debbie, in 1995. He said losing her was the most painful experience I've ever gone through. But the thought of a resurrection, the thought of seeing her again, brought hope. The fact that it was good for 30 AD when Christ rose, it's good for today and beyond. Folks, what the resurrection means for me. Now, there are three things that I want to just lay on your heart. I really believe that today ought to be a day of a reset. I think there should be no more. Folks, we cannot afford to, for people to go forward like that I talked about this morning in that poll. We need, a, we need a fresh reset of living for God. The other day I was driving around, I saw a little sign that said BBB. I think it's the Better Business Bureau. I thought, you know what? I'm going to steal that little logo there, redo it, and we're going we're gonna to remind folks of three important decisions. Last week I mentioned the importance of baptism and belonging. I want to add one more here this morning. First of all, believing. There are three things that I think are so important in light of the resurrection of Christ, believing. Unless we believe the Bible and believe God, we're done for. You'd say, well, what does it mean to believe? Well, you take this little chair over here. The actual Greek word for believe is a word which means to rely. Now, I have never sat on this chair before, as far as I know. <laughs> I've never sat on this chair before. It looks like a pretty nice chair. Looks pretty sturdy. Probably can hold my uh, 122 pounds. Uh, and, um, but uh, that's just in my head. But anyway, um, 
Believe is the Greek word for rely. Are you hearing me? Rely. Now, am I relying? That chair, boy, I know it'll hold me up. Sure of it. I know it will. Boy, that's a good chair. Okay. Now, am I relying on that chair? Mm -mm. I'm believing in it, but I'm really not really believing. I'm not believing until I rely. But here's how some people rely. They're on the edge of their chair, and 90% of the weight's on their feet, you know. Oh, I'll test God out. What kind of a living is that? Folks, come on. Put all your weight on it. Just go ahead and get on Jesus. There you go. Sink or swim. I'm done. <laughs> it's either all right or it's all wrong, folks. And the idea of just this half in, half off kind of Christianity, that is just a crazy way to live. It is time for a reset in 2021. Folks, you realize last year at this time, everybody was huddled in little tents everywhere, fearful. Now, I'm not trying to downplay anything. I'm just telling you, a lot has happened and it is time for a reset. It is time to really believe. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, what are you waiting for? I mean, really? Don't, don't be that person in Luke 12. Jesus said, fool. Fool for partying all the time, living for this, living for that. Oh, my goodness. What kind of a stupid way to live is that? That's just ridiculous. That's what the word fool means, stupid. Live for God. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe. It's as easy as just saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. And then number two, B. I, I, I picked the Bs because they're simple and they're believe, they're, and I put them as verbs. Start believing. Start baptizing. Get unashamed of your identity with Jesus. As I mentioned in the Bible, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. I mean, you, if you went to church and you were an unbaptized Christian, they'd be like, like, what's wrong with you? Are you not willing to stand for our Savior? Come on. That'd be like me saying, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed to wear my ring. I'm just so ashamed of my marriage. Folks, come on, get baptized. They would get baptized on the same day, and we're going to baptize this morning. And if you want to come next week or the week after, in fact, they told me, Pastor, if you want to invite someone today, we'll get robes back there. We don't baptize naked, so, um, but uh, we've got some robes back there. We will baptize you and believe and be baptized unashamed for the Lord. And the third B is belong. Folks, I know one of the hardest things for some folks to do is to just go ahead and commit themselves to a specific local church as their home. But I'm not sure why you feel that way. What in the world? I mean, come on. Why? Well, I mean, what are you waiting for? Why well, looking for the perfect church? Really? Well, here's my advice. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. Because then it won't be perfect any longer. <laughs> Amen? So come on. Folks, come and join. And So I'm not sure I agree with everything. Really? You don't agree with everything? And that's why you're not? Wow. That's really deep. Come on. Of course you don't agree with everything. We all are individuals. 
but we can agree on the major things for a cause, for a good cause. If you haven't been offended already, you're going to be. You come a few more weeks and I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll offend you one way or the other. And if I, ha- and, and if I haven't offended you, just tell me, I will. And uh, <laughs> then you'll get it all over with. Boy, that pastor. And come on, folks, we're in a mission here. We've got we've to make a difference in this world. We need folks to get, to believe on the Lord, to get baptized, and to belong to a Christ-loving, Bible-honoring Baptist church for Jesus Christ. Get out there and serve God. That's so important. It's time for a reset. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.